bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Hello, Roger. Oh, hello. From, How are you? I'm okay. You're you're probably better than I am. You are in sunny California, living it up. That is true. I don't know why. I don't know why. <laughs> is that a good idea to be here in sunny California in the middle of the COVID crisis? Um, I'm here though. You know, I'm here and I'm queer and I'm ready to party, but uh, quarantine appropriate. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, yeah, what's what's going on? Oh, you know, man, just enjoying Santa Cruz. I've never been. Uh, and I, it's lovely. It's lovely. I'm taking it in. But I'm excited to record this with you because I got a few hours to just kill. Mm-hmm. And I think what better time to talk about this fine piece of cinema, um, uh, The Clown at Midnight. Yeah, The Clown at Midnight. We uh, we disclosed that this was going to be our um, next episode, our last episode, where we discussed Hellbent. So... Uh, yeah, this is a interesting little piece of post-Scream slasher cinema. Hey, Scream 5, Courtney Cox. Ugh, give me that face, that face that's been filled with so many fillers. He's <laughs> and pulled back and tucked and trimmed and everything. I love it. I can't get enough of that face. I can't get enough of Courtney. Uh, she's always been my favorite character in the series. And uh, I wouldn't be appeased if she didn't return. Um, that being said, if somebody gets killed off, I wouldn't be upset with that either. I need something shocking to happen in order to make this entry valid for me. But I did love the last one. I thought Scream 4 was great. And um, just give me Nev. I, I've heard rumors that Nev is going to be signing on. Uh, uh, one of the articles I read, though, was uh, we got this covered. And I never, you know, 100% know how legitimate their information is. But um but I did hear that Nev is is pretty much confirmed. So if that comes out in the next week or two, I'm going to be thrilled. And I'm curious to see what they do with that. Yeah, oh, I agree. I agree. Um, I'm excited. I think Nev's going to sign on. She she expressed interest a long yeah. time ago. My thing is, yeah, I'm just really curious about what they're going to do with these characters that we haven't seen in four previous films. So like you, I really hope they the two filmmakers, you know, they did Ready or Not. I hope they kind of have some balls and, and, and do something kind of shocking. Yeah. Um, I know these are beloved characters and people are going to complain, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, come on, it's four films. It's it's, it's, getting, it's getting kind of silly that they survive that all yeah. three of them survive the attack every single time. Yeah. So we shall see. But anyway, Jack, the clown at midnight. Yeah. I picked this film. This was my pick. I picked this film because I remember um, watching this for the first time. And I, sort of developed a little obsession with this film where I watched it like probably way too many times. And it is a interesting film. And for those of you that maybe not, you know, that don't know really what the film is about, it's simply uh, seven, yeah, seven friends. Well, they're not really friends. Seven college students are recruited to help clean up uh, an old opera house. 
It just so happens, though, that one of the uh, characters that is part of this cleanup crew, her mother was murdered in the said hop opera house years before by a killer disguised as a clown. And in good slasher fashion, the seven teenagers end up getting locked in this old opera house and are picked off one by one by a killer in a creepy clown costume. So that's pretty much the synopsis of the film. I'm forgetting that it uh, stars the wonderful Margot Kidder. We love her. And Christopher Plummer, who would go on to win an Oscar, you know, what, 15 years later for Beginnings, where he plays a guy that comes out really late in his, you know, life. So interesting. Margot Kidder, Christopher Plummer. You have um, James Duvall, who has done a few things on his own. So, yeah. So that's that's kind of the setup for Clown at Midnight. What do you, you know, initially, what are your thoughts about this lovely film? Um, well, you know, I'm going to... I. I'm excited for this review with you. I'm gonna be honest because I'm, I'll be real. I didn't love it. I did not love it, and I wanted to because I heard the eagerness in your voice and the boy <laughs> when you announced the the title and Margot Kidder. How can how can we go wrong there? But um, God, I tried. I tried so hard to like it, and I didn't. But that's not to say there are not elements of it that I didn't find enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Just overall, it left me. It was it was hard to get through. I'm gonna be honest. It was a rough watch. Tough, tough view for me. So I mean, let's just start from the, the beginning and <laughs> go from there. Uh, and I'm excited to have this conversation with you because we, you know, the last one we were pretty much on the same page. This one, it seems like we're on drastically different ends of the spectrum. But who says we can't meet in the middle and find an agreement? So, well, you may, but you know what? You may be surprised because, like I said, it's been a long time since I saw this film. And watching it again this time with a different perspective, knowing that we were going to discuss it, I did kind of notice a lot of things that I probably didn't pay attention to the first dozen times I watched it when I was, you know, when it first came out, when I was, you know, a teenager or whenever. So, yeah, we there might be something I still adore. I mean, I still have a soft spot for this film. So let's just get that out of the way. But we may find some definitely uh, areas of agreement. Right. But that that opening scene, you get you get the uh, opera singer who's, you know, getting herself all beautified after her show in her dressing room. And uh, you get the someone trying to get into the room and, and that kind of. Whole setup, which reminded me a lot of the film that came out a few years ago, Stage Fright, with Minnie Driver. Very kind of the same opening. I wonder if those filmmakers saw this one. But yeah, so she gets the the opera singer gets attacked by the guy in the clown suit at the beginning, brutally stabbed to death, while the janitor is blissfully unaware because the music's playing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that opening. I'll say. Some of the, the strengths I witnessed just within the first five, ten minutes of the movie. The location when shot right is very effective. That whole venue is really, um, it lends itself to, to horror cinema. And I think that a lot of these sequences benefited from having this really atmospheric location. When they would do the shots where there was like some high aerial shots just down on the seats or they did a crane down 
very dramatic and I really liked just how they incorporated this really large venue and every aspect of it, including the dressing rooms, which come back into play later in the film. So that right there, strong point. I did feel, and it was an ongoing trend throughout the film and it started right off with the first sequence. The first kill really left a lot to be desired. And, and that never went away, in my opinion. There's not a single kill in the movie. There's maybe one kill in the movie that I was like, okay, pretty cool. But overall, I was, I think one of the, the weakest points overall in the film is just how the kills just really kind of went and kind of just fell flat for me. Starting with an opening kill in which you literally, virtually you see nothing. You see her get pulled back into the room. That was effective. There's something, it almost, it's got that kind of like, you know, we talk about Black Christmas a lot because I know we can relate on our love for that. The scene where he reaches through and grabs her, her hair and pulls through the banister. It was like one of those moments to me. Yeah. Uh, yanks her back into the room uh dramatic but then you see him kind of lean over her and you're wanting to see that gore because this is a slasher and it just didn't deliver and that kind of carried through through the rest of the film but that opening scene i think really set the tone for what to expect with the rest of the movie for me okay so let's go past the, the opening scene which like i said reminds me a lot of the opening scene from stage fright the the whole thing now has a very even like with the opening credits and everything it has a very like made for tv feel to it that I really didn't catch, like I said, when I watched this the first couple times I saw it. But it's very even the credits are like the opening credits are very underwhelming. It's just like word, you know, there's no um, finesse to it. If we look at like the opening credits to Hell Bent, for example, last week, they're very stylish. Uh, these are just blah, they're just stuck on the screen. It's just very flat. There, there's not a lot of flair to this movie outside of the costume of of the killer, but. After the opening scene, we do flash forward to meet, you know, the kind of the the main characters of the film. And we get Kate, who is the daughter of the opera singer who's brutally murdered at the beginning, who has to tell everyone her, her name is Kate like 50 times. I don't know how many times in this film she says, hi, I'm Kate. I'm like, yeah, we got it. And then you meet her best friend, Monica, played by Tatiana Ali. And I want to cite, I love her. I love this character so much that I named the character in Stirring slash Mrs. Claus after this character. There's a character in Stirring Mrs. Claus named Monica that I named from this film. I, I love her character so much. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, eh, we'll get to that. But hey, really quick, since we're talking about Tatiana Ali. I have not stopped listening to the song Daydreaming since you told me to watch this movie. It brought it all back. It came, it hit me like a brick to the face. I've been listening to it on loop, incorporating Steely Dan with that dun, 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 dun. You know the song. <laughs> I do. I do. And I'm going to... If we could play it right here, that'd be great. But God, I can provide the vocals because I know every word. But uh, that alone, seeing her face on the screen brought me so much joy. Um, and she was honestly one of the few characters that I found endearing. This movie is plagued, plagued, and we'll go into this more, with bad acting. Uh, some of the worst acting I've ever seen in a film in general. And that's saying so much. But it's some of the worst acting I've ever seen. But luckily, there's a few characters, Tatiana Ali being one of them, that are uh, endearing enough to like bring it back home for me. So uh, I, yeah, I just had to take a moment that she really is, I think, the standout of the film. And uh, yeah, uh, we'll talk more about what happens later with that. Yeah, so then, so she's she's the faithful best friend of Kate, who is kind of a basket case. And can I just say this? Kate is 
one of the most blandest characters ever. I mean, how did, how did they get an actress that looks so much like Liv Tyler that is not Liv Tyler? Well, it like, looks like a, a cross between Liv Tyler and like Julia Roberts. It's like the poor man's Liv Tyler with those fawn eyes and those full lips, but like she's so blase and that character is so boring. And I don't even want to say it's the actress's fault because the dialogue, another pitfall already, the dialogue is so bad in this movie. Hi, I'm, I'm Kate. Yeah. Hi. Well, and even like there's one line that she has early in the movie with uh, a, a bit of dialogue that she has earlier in the movie with with Monica, where like you introduce Monica's character and um, and she's like trying to convince her to come to this. And Monica's like reasoning is like, there'll be lots of cute boys there. And I'm like, who the fuck wrote this dialogue? It sounds like it was written by a first grader. It is so simplistic and so awful. How did they get Christopher Plummer in this movie? How did he look at the script and say, this is the one, this dialogue, selling point. But um, but yeah, no, Kate, is, Kate sucks. I feel bad for that actress, but that character was just written horribly. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's a very bland character. It's sort of like Renny in Friday the 13th Part 8. Just this ugh, bland. But anyways, yeah, so you get Monica and Kate, and then, you know, Kate has some sort of flashbacks related to the theater where she realizes her mom was the one that got killed. Uh, and I love kind of the first time when they first arrive at the uh, opera house, you know, and they meet all they they meet they meet the other kids that are helping. So you get um let's let's go through these characters because they are so just you know these three dimensional characters Roger come on you get you get um the bitchy oh. Ashley the worst actress I've ever seen in a movie I don't who is this chick who I, is this and I'm not looking to I'm not coming for this actress I feel bad for her if anything but come on <laughs> this bro, who said this is this is it the, every line was so. Flat. I was I was shocked. It was shocking to watch her. Um, I need to bring up Walnut because her name is the worst name I've ever heard in a movie, and I kept expecting it to be Acorn or Pecan Sandy, and I could never remember it was Walnut. I just knew it was a nut, and that really, oh, it just made me hate her right off well, the bat. Well, no. I was saying, like, okay, so she introduces herself, and she's like, hi, I'm Walnut Weber. Oh, that's not my real name. My real name is Cheryl. And then she just stopped. I'm like, okay, you got have to tell me how you got the nickname Walnut. Like you throw that out there and never touch on it. She again. never and they never touch on it. Is it is it her hair color? I don't know. I was like, why is this bitch called Walnut? <laughs> and then yeah, so Ashley Walnut. Um, a lot. I don't even remember the boyfriend's. Oh, name. The gay guy Marty. He. You know, if I'm gonna say there's one other character in this ensemble that I found endearing, shockingly enough. It's the gay dude. Shocking to me that in this film, which was, what was it, 1999-ish, 2000? Yeah, it was 99. The two standout characters are the girl of color and the gay dude. And that's an honest-to-God truth. The gay, though, he was played big. He was played confident. Yeah. He was confident in himself. He never, uh, uh, like, he, he never backed down to anyone who could, like, came at him or confronted him. He was a very, like, strong character and one of the most likable ones in the group. So, oh, for sure. Probably the filmmakers for that, for those two characters alone, that elevated the film for me. Yeah, and we'll talk about some stuff with him, you yeah. know. Yeah. But um, and then you get Taylor, the hot jock boyfriend. That's it, Taylor. Taylor, yeah. Um, and then George, who again, that's I was just like floored by his acting because he is he of the cast, he's one of the ones that has gone on to do other things. And in this film, he is just so bad. So bad. Word. 
Donnie Darko, uh, he's Frank, right? Donnie Darko, he's Frank the Rabbit. Is that, I, is, I believe so, yeah. Because uh, I was like, I know this guy. I know his face. But um, And again, though, it's one of those things, like, the acting is so horrible. But I look at this, and I watch these scenes executed. And first of all, the dialogue is just so fucking horrible that they're giving these characters. Second of all, the scenarios are so stupid that I, I look at these actors, and I'm like, I can't really imagine delivering this dialogue and doing it in a way that's convincing. So I have to be almost sympathetic as an actor watching these people, because I watch this, I'm like, I don't know how I would have sold that. I can't imagine selling some of these moments, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So they all go into the opera house and Miss Gibby is there. Miss Gibby's played by Margot Kidder. And she, you know, is telling them what their tasks are going to be for the weekend. And, oh, and then they want to go see the room where Kate's um, mother was murdered. That's a reason of Kate let's go see the room where your mother was murdered to which she does say no I want to see it I don't see the rationale in that I feel like that opened a whole can of worms right there Kate but you know what whatever you need to do to cope that's fine yeah okay then they then they do that she freaks out screams punches Marty um you know and blah 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 and then they go home and you know Kate has some bad dreams and then it's the next day. Another thing I need to address with that bad dream. It's never really explained, unless I missed in some of this paper-thin dialogue, it's never explained what happens to Kate after her mother dies. So you have this sequence where Kate wakes up from this nightmare, and these two sympathetic parental figures come in and have one moment where they're like, oh, hmm, oh, calm yourself, go back to sleep, hmm, and then they disappear. <laughs> never discussed again. Is this her aunt and uncle, or is she adopted? Uh, the, that moment, like, it really was one of, like, I watched that scene where these two people come in and comfort her. I watched the scene, and it really was an example about just how paper thin every aspect of this movie is. Like, it is the thinnest amount of dialogue they could have given these characters to, like, come and show some form of support through this nightmare. Oh, we'll try to get back to sleep, all right? And then they just go away, and it's just like, there was no warmth to it. There was no humanity to it. It was literally, like, just paint-by-the-numbers dialogue, and I was so, like, shocked that this made it through its final draft i am watching a first draft being translated to screen that, that yeah no it very much feels that way it very much feels oh i forgot to mention mr mr Carruthers, or carruthers the theater owner who shows up and says some you know ominous shit and then yeah. disappears but anyways the next the next day uh miss gibby is there before the students and gets killed with an axe to the face Cool effect. Cool effect. Yeah, that was one of the deaths that looked pretty cool. So out of nowhere and just so quick and like, I feel like a lot of these deaths just kind of just happened and then you forget about them. Yeah. 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 And, you know, we talk about, I, I talk about a post-Scream slasher and I, I'm addressing someone specifically that when I when I posted that I was watching this and I had made the comment that it's a post-Scream slasher, they wanted to know why it was important that I point out that it's a post-Scream slasher. The slasher genre was dead before Scream came out. I mean, I don't think uh, some of these people might not be old enough to remember how dead the slasher genre was until Scream came out, but it was dead, dead. Scream revitalized that, and it, it really brought forward a very paint-by-numbers formula that all of these other films tried to copy. Yep. Okay, so you had, from, from 97 to probably about 2002, you had all of these films that were trying to be Scream. Do I low budget stuff? Do you do I, do you want to know a secret? The pool, 
even like urban legend probably wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Scream. And it very it's very formulaic, very formulaic. If you look at the the um poster for this film, it's very the B, the the lead. You've got the redhead at the middle, and then you've got the other kids kind of extending out, and it's the exact same. It's always like you've got the lead characters, and they're all like coming in at an angle or something, and they're all in like dark clothing, looking ominous, yeah. and there's looming above them. Yeah, yeah, it's very much like following the exact same uh, uh, blueprint that yeah. we've seen from the I know what you did last summers and the screams and the urban legends. Though they all kind of were molded out of the same dough. And then you get a, you get a, you you kill off your biggest star in the first ten minutes of the movie. Margot Kidder is arguably the biggest star in the film at the time. Uh, you kill her off in the first ten minutes of the movie. What's that remind you of? Drew Barrymore and Scream. But the thing is about this film is it, this it doesn't have the same referential self referential tone that Scream does. You know, Scream right. is very a, about winking. You know, oh look, we know we're a slasher film and being very self referential. This one plays it pretty straightforward and i don't know if that's to its detriment or not um that it does play it straightforward um but i don't know so that's just my thought and then you get you know once miss gibby's dispatched all of the, the teenagers come back to the theater or the opera house for the day to start cleaning this is where you get the cleaning montage okay what a treat what a treat yeah, it's just this. It's, it goes on forever. It's not even as entertaining as like the cleaning montage and like evil laugh from the eighties. I mean, these kids are just. It's just very. Ugh. It's like I said. It's very made for TV movie ish. Can I say and and just and I know you. I know you've watched this film and I maybe you'll see this, but um, when I when I got to this point in the film, I started noticing these very strange similarities between this and a film that I was in called Chill the Killing Games. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is about a group of kids who are doing a um, like a web series, role playing game web series in a uh, shutdown area of an amphitheater or of a, of a, of, um, of like a college campus of the, of the arts. They're you know they're redoing the arts building with the theaters in it and everything. And so you have a lot of sequences that are I'd say eighty percent of the movie is set in like a theater based setting. And so the venue already, I was like, hmm, I'm seeing a lot of chill. But then, like, you got to the thing where, like, they're bringing in the kids for the cleaning sequence, a cleaning montage. Specific shots look just like chill. And I have never seen this movie before. And this movie was never discussed as an inspiration. And some of the things that happen in this film, I was like, this is almost eerie to me because it's very similar. So it was just kind of shocking to me. Just to throw that out there for me as someone who has never seen this movie. It's crazy how so many of these films follow so many of the same patterns that we start mirroring each other and not even knowing it because yeah. is a specific blueprint for how to do a slasher. And we all tend to stick to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the, you get the cleaning montage. You get uh, Kate having another wait. Kate has another little freak out. And the bitchy Ashley, you know, is is, is being a bitch to her. I can't even remember what she what she says. She's like, oh, you're you're a. A nutcase or, you know, something like that. Why don't you have another scene? It was something like that. About oh, yeah. You're on stage. Why don't you have another scene? And then the brilliant line when um, Walnut kind of steps in to defend her. I love that Ashley says, shut up, squirt. I'm thinking, squirt? What is this? Leave it to Beaver? Yeah, I haven't heard somebody call somebody a squirt for, I don't even know the last. And I'm like, oh, my God. In the sense of the writing in general, when you look at like these moments she has that you're talking about, I, there's no ex 
explanation for it. She really is just like this horrible character. And these characters are written so two-dimensional. You said this earlier. Uh, there's no redeeming qualities. There's no moment of humanity. You know what I mean? Like every line that Ashley has is along the lines of what you just said. It's, it's so confusing to me. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It's yeah, the characters are it's like they're trying to create prototypes of your generic slasher characters. You know, she's trying her best to her tone. She uses the same inflection in every single line she delivers. It's like her bitch inflection. Um, Beat it squirt or whatever. I mean, it's just that bitchy. It's the same thing. And what I find, you know, I love this scene because then it leads to the boyfriend and Marty doing this sword fight. Which I find very interesting because you get the gay guy and the jock sword fighting and grunting while they're, you know, uh, 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 while they're hitting each other with the sword. I'm like, okay, this is yeah. kind of homoerotic. And then to top it off after that, because, you know, the jock loses his uh, sword fight, he has to go have sex with his girlfriend. And <laughs> an even more awkward sword fight in which they use the audio from uh monica is this time is the one that's that's going up against uh marty so it's monica and marty they use their audio and they're grunting and they're like oh yeah oh we're having a sword fight mm. over that sex scene and maybe they were trying to be artistic maybe they were trying to do something bold but between the awkwardness of all of that and the soundtrack, which we have not gotten into yet that we will discuss, it made for one of the most awkward scenes in the film, in my opinion. I have that noted right here. The sex scene and the audio over the sex scene is cringeworthy, in my yeah. opinion. Well, there's a, there's a song playing over it, and I could not figure out. Is, it a, is that a Tatiana Ali song? I was praying it was. I Google. I I seriously spent like 15 minutes googling it, and I could not find out if if it was her song. I'm assuming it it was. But it's so poorly placed. Like, there's so many songs over the course of this film that are like so awkwardly fit in, and not only that, but like the sound is not leveled. Like, if you listen, the dialogue gets drowned out by a lot of the the, the songs, uh, the soundtracks, and the score is some of the most like low grade MIDI file contrived bs i've ever heard i was shocked by how bad the music was in this film that i think was one of the least effective bits of this whole thing the music sounds so cheap whether it be the score that's provided or the soundtrack that's playing in certain sequences it just really did not hit at all and for that sex scene especially there's this big like loud song playing and it has all of this um like, you know, it's all dialogue heavy, the song, and like there's no suspense built because of that, because you know somebody's watching them have sex, but because of this like heavy R&B like fucking song you're hearing, they like just totally lost the moment. I don't know yeah. if you... Oh yeah, no, it's a, it's a completely awkward sex scene. I mean, um, looking at it back now, back when I first saw this movie, I probably was like, oh yeah, he's get the hot guy to take his shirt off, yay. But um, yeah, now it's very awkward. And then, you know, they, they try to give the Taylor character some sort of dimensional characteristic because he gets in a fight with with Ashley. And he's like, after they have sex, of course, he's like, I'm more than just a football player. You know, like storms out. And I'm like, oh, God, that even that line, like that's that's your defense. Like, I'm more than a football player. Like, what's that mean? Like, what is a football player? That's what I'm, I mean. I don't know. What what is that supposed to mean? I'm more than a football player. Nothing like if you watch that scene, like, I mean, I'm sorry, that's like another scene. I have so many things listed here that I'm like issue. He's sitting there after sex. They just had this big sensual fuck and not a line is muttered. 
she like gets up, she's brushing her hair and she's like, what's, what's, what's wrong or whatever? Like, what's wrong with you? And he's like, I'm sick of, I'm sick of your like high and mighty bullshit. But like high and mighty and like whatever term he uses, you know, she's been this character from the beginning. It's no different. And like she, it's not like she did something or said something to cause him to say that line. They have sex and then he's just like, you know what? Fuck you, bitch. And like storms out. And I was just like, now is the time? This is the moment? I don't know. Again, weird writing. Continue. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And so he storms out. He leaves her and she's, she calls him a asshole or something. And uh, she gets killed. She's the first to get killed. And it's a very underwhelming death scene. This bitch deserved a much more brutal death scene. She gets strangled with a goddamn necklace. Come on. She deserved to be, I mean, I was like, come on. That's like the, the tamest death scene for, ever, for of all the characters. And for the and she's the one that deserves like the worst death scene. Right, right. Especially being like the first of the core group to go. You know, like, I mean, like the teacher aside, I'm seeing the first of the, the teen fodder. I would have anticipated some kind of big, gory bladder fest and yeah we got something really not only tame but just the way they film a lot of these deaths are very lackluster uh, a lot of the moments that you expect to be like a shock or a surprise like there's a hanging moment where like a body drops down Heard, and, yeah. and yeah and and you there's so many ways you could film that to have it be a shocking moment with a music strike and the way they film it you just see the, the characters like oh like reacting and then you just see the body like there and they don't even show it drop and it loses this impact and I'm just very baffled by a lot of the the decisions made by the director in the sense of like executing the suspense and the shock and the fear because they miss it so often, you know, it's just, you know, and regardless, I mean, there's still something a little campy about the film, but, um, it, yeah, it's just, it's all I can say is it just, it's, it's, it's flat. Like I said, I used to watch this film so many times and got a kick out of it. And this time, just this view, I'm like, what in the world? But I, with that said, there are some redeeming qualities. I I do like the whole chase scene with Monica, um, which we can get to because she unfortunately is the second one to die. Yeah, which I thought was a very poor decision plot wise to make the most likable character the one to die second in probably the most brutal way or the most graphic way. I would say definitely. Oh, and we have to forget. We can't. We have to mention that you get George running around here, the the opera house, with trying trying the clown costume on, even though he knows that the clown killed Sarah or Kate's mom, and he just keeps like putting the clown costume on and popping out of nowhere. I'm just. Well, I think what they were really trying to do with George and like a red and- herring. Is, is a red herring, but the thing is, like, A, his character is written so awkwardly and poorly that, like, it doesn't really ever land. And B, right when they start to get to the point where you're like, oh, like, maybe he is red herring, maybe there's some weight to it, they just totally just throw it away. Like, they all of a sudden just reveal the killer, and everyone's like, oh, run! It's like a Scooby-Doo moment, you know, where everyone takes off, and it's like, and that's out the window. Obviously, he's not the killer anymore, but they spend all this time kind of trying to take it that route and make him seem, like, mysterious. He's such, like, the bad boy even though he's really not effective as the bad boy but the whole thing with like liking to do gore makeup and of course he wants to play with the clown the clown makeup and putting on the costume like 
it was just like it was very forced his character all around is forced mm-hmm. just to kind of have like exposition for the rest of the storyline and provide a weak red herring you know yeah absolutely he's the red herring for sure and just like he's it's a poor red herring but yeah i do like i do i do like monica's scene where she um well she even thinks at the beginning she thinks the clown that she when she's going looking for you know whatever and she sees the clown character she even thinks it's george even yeah. though this clown character is like probably five or six inches taller much more stocky <laughs> but she's like george what are you doing you know and then she gets a little chase scene and she gets to be a badass when she grabs the spear and stabs it through the uh the wall and the killer clown grunts so she thinks she killed him and what happens oh, so sad so my question for you, and maybe you can translate this for me, is uh, so I almost when I saw that sequence happen, I almost was like, is there an element of fantasy to this? Is this like a paranormal thing? Because like she stabbed it through and he was, you know, he obviously went behind that screen. She stabbed it through. He grunted from behind the screen. She backs up and then she gets stabbed from like you directly behind her. Now, he couldn't have gone around the one way because there was they were on that bridge. So mm-hmm. he would have around the other direction like and she would have seen it because it was completely exposed so how did that happen did like did that did you know what i'm do you get what i'm saying do you understand why that scene is like baffling to me i don't understand how he could have gotten from behind the one screen where she thought she had stabbed him to behind the other one with the same spear that was used to stab him do you get what I'm saying? Is this coming through clear? <laughs> yeah, no, I'd have to watch it again because I, even though I've seen it, like I said, but I think I thought that it was the same screen that she backed against. I thought that there was one screen and she like was backing up and like, she's like, I did it. I killed him. And then all of a sudden it came through from behind her, which means he would have had to have relocated. Okay. Um, I'll, have to, I'll have to rewatch. Yeah. We're going to have to rewatch this and clarify on the next. Because I thought, I think once she stabs it through and she hears him grunt, She's like, oh, and then she turns around and backs up against it. But then again, the question remains, how do you get the spear? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's it's just it's something there's something off about that kill. There's something in the sense of like when you're watching how it plays out, they're either they tried to maybe trick something so it made sense, but just didn't translate or I don't know. But like it just didn't make sense when I watch it and like playing it back because I watched a couple times. To my mind, she's going from if I'm facing it, she's going from the left hand screen. And there's another screen on the right. So she backs up against the right-hand screen, and then she gets stabbed through her torso from behind it, which means he would have had to have gotten there, and he would have had to have gotten there with that spear. I don't understand. Yeah. You don't, what, the, the only logical thing I can maybe make of it is, is you know, at the end, and we're skipping ahead of here, but because you, you brought this up, you know, at the end, there really are two clowns in the opera house. There's the dad, uh, uh, Kate's dad, who apparently has just been living in this opera house for years because he didn't he was going to be a red herring for the, the the murder and then you got Mr. Carruthers so maybe one of them because remember at the end Jay, um what the hell is his name George he's like oh your dad I ran into your dad and he tried to warn me so maybe we're supposed to assume that the first clown that Monica ran into was her, the dad trying to warn her and she freaked out I, I, so there was literally, so there was two, and then it was actually Mr. Carruthers who killed her. I don't know. Um, maybe I'm, I, I'm, th- I think I'm giving this way too much thought. I don't know. Yeah, 
yeah, uh, you and me both, brother. But uh, anywho, Monica's dead, and we all mourn moving forward. And it's a sad death scene because she is the most likable character, and her death is pretty effective. The way you know she how she falls over. I thought yeah. that was pretty. Yeah. But anyways, and then yeah, so then the, you go back to the group and. All of us, I mean, it, everything happens so quickly. Yeah, Ashley's body falls from the onto the from a rope onto the stage, and they all freak out and break up and run away. And then they're all dispatched, kind of one by one, pretty quickly. I think you get Tyler, Taylor, 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 who runs up to the roof. Another and, off hill. They're like, yeah, it's, in that spotlight. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I get so many that's that so reminds me again, and I just Brian mentioned this film earlier. It reminds me of Friday the thirteenth, Jason takes Manhattan with the kill on the roof. You know? Um, yeah. except this one, he is thrown off the roof, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I feel bad for him because he, you know, he wasn't a bad character and the actor isn't terrible, but he gets thrown over the roof and he's hanging on and he's like, I don't want to die. Give me a hand. Like, do you really think that this clown is going to save you after you saw him hang your girlfriend from the stage? Like, you really are going to trust this guy. Right. So what's he do? He takes the clown's hand, and guess what? It's a fake hand, and he falls to his death. I guess it's just a stupid thing to say. Like, oh, give me a hand. I would have been trying to pull myself up, doing whatever I could. I'm not going to ask the clown that just murdered my girlfriend. Oh, right. here, please spare me. It just another another example of just, like, bad Bad writing, bad execution, I think. And then after, right after Taylor, who gets dispatched next, you get Marty. Yeah, and and yet another awkward sequence. At least like Marty defends himself. I like, I did like that. But like the way that whole thing played out in that suspiciously placed electric chair that apparently works in this yeah. theater. I was like, I just, I just don't understand how that worked out like i feel like somebody was like we need to have an electric chair kill and just, people but how it's a theater and they're like just a what? random it's supposed to be a prop i didn't know prop electrical chairs actually worked right well so i keep in mind he cut the wire behind it but like i to my it, the way i read it the wire was attached to the chair so that means it genuinely could have electrocuted somebody because it did fry marty to a point that his skin is blackened like a like a jerk chicken like i mean like you see his body revealed and his eyes are like perfectly white and pristine yeah. yeah 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 crisped um so something had to electrocute him and i'm guessing it was that fucking chair because that's the wire that was cut and then shoved into the metal cuff it was just very awkward a lot of the, these kills i would describe them like the word I would use to describe the almost all of the deaths in this movie is clunky. Like they're edited awkwardly, they're scored awkwardly. The shots don't always blend together. Things kind of happen, but they cut away from them. I almost, in my mind, to cover up things that don't necessarily make sense. Like something I want to mention: when that body's hanging and it's rotating, you can see that the rope that is attached to Ashley, when she rotates certain ways, you can tell that that is a harness, and it's like. How was how did you miss this? Like, how is this overlooked? I just feel like whoever was in charge of like executing these sequences did not know what they were doing because most of them do not land. No, and it's that's definitely editing. I, I think that the editing is very yeah. I mean, there's issues. So yeah, you get you get these characters dispatched pretty quickly because then it's Walnut. You know, Walnut's turn to get her little comeuppance, and you know she's decapitated with a sword. At least Pistachio got that head tumble. 
<laughs> where like you had that slow motion, like really like the, the contrast was really intense with like a hard lighting, but at least it was like, okay, this is like something kind of gory, a bouncing head, which honestly like that death, somehow, some way, that death was probably one of the more effective ones to me. And that's just going to say how not effective most of the other ones are. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, then it's then it's the final showdown between uh, you get Kate and George, and they encounter the, the the clown, and they break up somehow, and she gets knocked out by the clown and wakes up on the stage. Very reminiscent, and again, I keep bringing up all these movies, but very reminiscent of Popcorn. Mm-hmm. You know, the the climax of Popcorn with Jill Sholin, where yep. she, you know, wakes up on, it's a very similar thing. Right. Um, and, what, and what do we find out? What do we find out as the reveal? Who's the killer? Christopher fucking Plummer. <laughs> really threw me for a loop. And let me just say as a compliment to this film, that the all-star actors that we have in this, Margot Kidder and Christopher Plummer, I feel like they could have really just half-assed their performances, but they do not phone it in. They give it their all. And mm-hmm. I am shocked and baffled by how hard they work on this movie. That really does not deserve that much effort. And that is one of the reasons this movie is a little bit better than awful. You know, because Margot Kidder's performance is honestly, like, vivacious. Uh, she's pretty dynamic. Uh, yeah. She really carries her scenes. And he... Or as absurd as absurd as it is to see Christopher Plummer at what I would assume would be already age 75 plus in a full clown, clown costume with makeup, demanding that that girl sing like sing for me, he's demanding the <laughs> opera. Um, and I was like, God, he's really selling. <laughs> he's really giving it his all. And I appreciate that from Christopher. Oh, Plummer. I, I was thinking the same thing. Christopher, you are so committed to this goddamn clown movie. I don't I don't know, you know. Bless your heart. That's all I could think. Bless your heart because you got the the lead actress who is just bland as shit, and he's out acting her by a mile. She has some awkward wig on. How did he get that wig on her? I like, don't know. But is it he? Okay, so he was the one that killed her mother because she scorned him, and he saw her making love to the other another actor, and she scorned him. So she he's he was the killer all along. And I just, again, I just don't understand one thing. And then you find out her dad is the actor actor who is in full clown costume throughout, for how many years? He has lived 20 plus years, I'm assuming. I mean, well, how old is she? Is she supposed to be, she's in college, right? So yeah, Yeah. I'm assuming 20 years he has lived in clown costume and makeup. And maybe he's been forced to living in this basement scenario. So let's just break this down. So here's, here's what it is. In the opening sequence, Christopher Plummer's the the lover. The clown is someone that she is madly in love with and is going to marry. Christopher Plummer is jealous. And thus he kills the the the, the opera singer, correct? I just want to make sure I'm on the page. So yeah, kills- you are right. But then he makes it appear as though it's the clown who did it. But he tells the clown that he's on his side. And so he hides him in the right. basement. Like yeah. the fan of the fucking opera, he hides him in the basement of this theater and tells him, someday you'll be free. I don't know when, but we got to get through this. And apparently the clown only has this clown outfit and makeup to wear because he is wearing it as soon as he's revealed. It is then revealed, yes, that Christopher Plummer is in fact obsessed with the opera singer, madly in love with her. Because he cannot have her, he then instead wants to have Kate 
because she is the spitting image of her mother and reminds him of her. And because he wanted to be his his original love, he then tries to force her to sing opera with him. Correct. Yeah, correct. Even though that even though she looks nothing like the actress that played her mother, but whatever. And then it's then. Uh, I, I, the, the, how many fucking clown costumes are there in this goddamn opera house? Because what happens is George jumps out and in a fucking clown costume. But why? Why? <laughs> I don't know. Is it explained why he had to be in that costume? No, it's not. And he wasn't in it. He wasn't in it five minutes before. No, when the when the other clown, good clown, bad clown. We're gonna play good clown, good clown, bad clown at this point. So when good clown, father clown, the actual father of Kate stumbles upon George and he covers his mouth. He's actually help. He's saying, shh, be quiet. Uh-huh. I'm not, we've got to help Kate yeah. here. Put on this clown costume. Yeah, just, and go. Which, which just, I don't, it just didn't make any sense why he's in this clown costume because then he jumps out and him and Christopher Plummer, who is also in full clown costume, the exact same clown costume, they, 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 they start to fight and you, Kate doesn't know which is which. But I mean, fight, even, that fight lasts for literally uh, 10 seconds. And yeah. George is quickly, quickly defeated by elderly Christopher Plummer. George is useless. Let's be clear. Oh, it's not even it's like one of those things where Kate has to be like, oh, I've got a gun. And which one do I shoot? No, no. it doesn't do anything. It just the story continues. George does nothing to help whatsoever. No, no, he doesn't. Except get, you know, the clown away from Kate, and she happens to be able to untie her hands in the most awkwardly way possible. Just oh, that's. And then she runs over and releases uh, the, the 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 hatch, the stage drop. Break a leg. I'm Kate. Break a leg. Pulls the lever and he falls and he's impaled on I don't know what it is. Um, just a bunch of. It's those well, goddamn those real spears that they. Oh, apparently- the spears. Yeah, it looked like I just was trying to figure out what it was. Why are these things sticking up randomly? But yeah, okay, it's the spears. I'll buy that. But I won't buy that they're real spears if this is a community theater. Well, they have an electric chair for crying out loud. Oh, yeah, I mean, if guess if you're going to go big, go big. Productions must be amazing. Yeah. Right. And then and then the two, George is awkwardly says, oh, his 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 line delivery is so cringeworthy worthy. It's just horrible, horrible. But anyways, they they get out, and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> what I mean, that finale, in so many ways, I was just like, what the fuck is going on? First of all, you're right. The multiple clowns was overwhelming. There is at one point three clowns in mm. the same in the same room. Um, but like above everything, my biggest issue beyond everything is the fact that like Kate is so underutilized as a heroine. Like, she never really defends herself. She never, ever has a moment other than just, like, breaking down. She's worthless. Uh, She is. At least she does have that moment where she stabs Christopher Plummer, Oscar Award winner Christopher Plummer, in the eye. Um, She does have that slap. Remember that? And that's what, she's like, oh, my eye. And then she's like, break a leg. And that's what leads to him falling through the floor. But other than that, like she literally is given no moment to be redeeming in any way. And I don't even throw that at the actress. I throw that at just a horribly written character. Yeah. You know, how would I can't imagine anyone making that character likable. Um, the only thing I've got to say, like in the sense of like her character arc and everything is 
it's an arc that I feel like we've seen used afterwards and influence other films, and it boggles my mind how. But like the, a movie that I love, The Final Girls, really oh. echoes a lot of little moments in this with like the whole thing about like the loss of a mother who was in the performance industry and this character coping through it and so so forth and so on. And I was like, how am I getting like influences of this from the final girls which is such a superior film like i mean did they see this and say let's try doing this aspect better um but i definitely got that vibe and other movies too there's uh, sequences in this film that like just make me think of other films that are better films but that came after this and i wonder like did this film somehow have some kind of impact on horror fans and especially people in our age range like you've just said like even though it's an awful movie you still find something endearing about it and something that you love about it um and i can still see why even though it's a shitty film (laughs) i feel like you know i just feel like it was at that point where you know i grew up in the 80s predominantly and i'm a huge 80s slasher fan um that's my that's the golden age of horror for me are, are all the 80s slashers and i just remember like living through the 90s and there was just nothing that was satiating slasher fans until scream came out and you know scream allowed all of these other films as shitty as they were to to be made and i just remember i don't know i mean maybe it was because i sat through so much garbage like final stab and do you want to know a secret and and these really low budget direct-to-video stuff that when i saw this for the first time there was just something very charming and very endearing about it and I wasn't looking at it maybe as a, with a critical eye. I was just looking at it as a fact that, hey, this really harkens back to the 80s slasher feel, the 80s slasher vibe. It's not trying to be, like I said, it's not trying to be self-referential like Scream. It's just trying to play it very straightforward as a slasher, just like Hellbent. I said the same thing about Hellbent last week. And I think that's what I kind of liked about this film. But yeah, watching it now years later, because it's been years since I've watched this film, yeah, it's it, there's a lot. It's very problematic. It's very problematic. It's probably not a good film. I would watch it again. I mean, I, I feel like maybe a couple of years down the line, I'd, I'd, I'll pull it out again and give it a watch just because it's kind of a comfort film for me. But watching it this time around, yeah, there, it, there, it's problematic. It, it, there's, it's not as slick as it could be. It's the, the characters, like like we talked about, are very one-dimensional with the exception of Monica. But yeah, it's, and I, I don't know how many, you know, how well known this film is, but it is interesting that you that it does seem to have a lot of sequences and things and characters that that pop up in later films. So maybe it's more well known than we know, mm-hmm. or maybe because it is an underground film, or I don't want to say underground, but it went under the radar. The only people that are going to see this movie are going to be people like you and I that really appreciate the genre, and so of the people that see it, you know, horror fans. The people that are making these movies, horror fans, they're going to take the influences from films they've seen and, and the things that affected them, things that they think they could do better. And so I wouldn't be shocked that this movie was just seen by the, the right people because they, they seek this out. They seek this kind of material out. And just because it's a bad movie doesn't mean that there aren't moments of inspiration in there that couldn't be taken and applied to another project. You know? Yeah, absolutely. But well, I mean, I had I had fun. I mean, I had fun watching it. It's yeah, you know, I got I got I definitely got a whole different um, perspective on this film this time around. Being so many years since I've seen it, mm-hmm. I still love the character of Monica. That's probably my favorite part about the film is her character. 
And it's sad that she's the second, you know, she dies so early in the film. She, it would have been very interesting for the filmmakers to give this film a twist and make her the final girl. But alas, they didn't. Gays, gays that are listening, please go listen to Daydreaming right now. Yes. And some sales, Tatiana Ali. That song is an iconic classic. And even though this movie may not be great, that song is. So uh, I challenge you all to go tap into some tap into some nostalgia and go listen to some Tatiana Ali right now because she's dreaming that was the that was the jam that well I I remember I owned the little cassette single for that that was the jam (laughs) so yeah that that's a clown at midnight hopefully I I think I think you're probably surprised that I agreed with you more than you thought uh no I mean no you know what um I don't want to be surprised like I, I you said it had been a while since you watched it and I think one of those things is you know as filmmakers we're constantly trying to grow and as we're try- learning what to do and what not to do, I-, I know I all the time go back and watch a movie that I thought was something that was really phenomenal uh, in my younger years and I'll revisit it and I'll think, oof, that was just a subject of the times. You know, yeah. that was young and inexperienced and not knowing necessarily what good cinema is. Um, and But I also get the nostalgia factor. This movie, I mean, I'm sure 20 years from now, you'll be able to watch this movie and say, oh, this movie is not a great movie, but it, it moves something in me because it reminds me of a different time in my life. So I get that and I can appreciate that, you know? For sure. But that's a clown at midnight. And that is our second episode. Yeah. So why don't you tell the lovely audience, because this was your first pick, what our next episode, what film we will be discussing in our next episode. And this is a good one. Guys, I have decided, um, I decided that I wanted to kind of go a different route. So I wanted to go with something a little more modern within the last, you know, five, six years. Um, I'm going with a movie called The Invitation. It is a slow burn suspense drama uh, that builds up and builds up and builds up until it boils over in an amazing way. Uh, If you have not seen it, please consider watching it so you can uh join in when we do this next uh podcast review because i really think this is a movie that needs to be seen um obviously you can probably tell my opinion on this film uh just by my building it up but um i i honestly think it's one of the finest films made within the last 10 years i'm really excited to talk about this movie um if you like slow burn suspense and drama and shocks please go watch this movie and um yeah troy i'm super excited to discuss it with you because it's one of my favorites yeah, it's a great, it's, I mean, I, I, we're, I think we're, I mean, anybody that follows me on social media and saw me post, oh, back in January, I had posted uh, the, my 10 favorite horror films of the last decade. Ever, you'll know how I feel about this film. It's, it's, it's a brilliant film. It's directed by a female, Karen Kasuma. So yeah, if you've not seen it, I, I'm pretty sure it's still on Netflix. You got to check it out before, before this next episode. Um, because it's, it's a, it's a good film and I'm so happy to ex- discuss it because it's one that I haven't seen for a few years. So definitely. I, one is uh, this next uh, episode is just, I think it's going to be really uh, dynamic you and I, because I know, I know, you know, this movie, I know this movie inside out. And uh, I think that we're really going to get into the meat and bones of this and just like dig our fingers in because there is a lot to dissect about the invitation. Oh God. And yeah, I just, I can't wait to discuss it with you. So this next one is going to be a really good one. I, 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 I promise you guys. Yeah. So tune in. 
And we hope you enjoyed our discussion about the classic slasher film with Peanut and what the fuck's her name? Walnut. And hi, I'm Kate. 50,000 times. Yeah, hopefully you enjoyed our discussion. But yeah, so tune in. Uh, next episode will be dropping next week uh, where we discuss the invitation. And again, guys, thank you for listening. Thank you for the love. We've been getting some positive feedback. Um, again, our goal is to improve with each episode and kind of get our groove going. And Roger has been in, like I said, he's been in California for the last couple of weeks. So we finally got him to do this out of his hotel room. Yay. But uh, so, yeah, tune in. The invitation. Guys, we will see you next episode. And don't forget, give us some love, give us some likes, leave some comments. And if you have a recommendation, drop it on our official Facebook page. We will get to the movie. And uh, we love hearing your feedback. So thank you. Yes, thank you, guys. Until next week. Later. Later.